On this week's 51%, we speak with Sangeeta Kausik, a Hindu chaplain at New York University, as part of our series speaking with women religious leaders and scholars. Kausik shares with us the multitude of ways Hinduism is practiced and her love of pujas. The fact that you can see multiple ways of the divine is something that always appealed to me. Like whatever you're feeling inside, there's space for you. There's room at the table for you. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. This week, to kick off your new year, we're continuing our series speaking with women religious leaders and scholars to celebrate the different ways that we worship. Our guest today is Sangeeta Kausik, a Hindu chaplain and founder of the Hindu Center at New York University. Kausik has a lot of loves. She's an artist and fashion designer by profession, a scholar of Arabic calligraphy, an activist, and even a trained dancer. But she says her faith plays a role in every aspect of her life, and it has for as long as she can remember. The daughter of Indian immigrants, Kausik says her father helped start three Hindu temples across the U.S., including her childhood temple in Livermore, California. Unfortunately, in the West, there's a negative connotation that they call our deities idols and that we're, Hindus are idol worshipers, which is not correct. The correct term for the statues, the deities that you see inside the temple is murti, which is a symbolic representation of the divine. So these murtis stayed at my house and our puja room. A puja room is a, a special room or a corner or a cupboard or anything in your house that you dedicate just for worship. So we have an extra bedroom downstairs, so puja room. Before the temple was consecrated, the deities stayed in our home. And for me as a child, I remember I'm a very small child here. I'm one, two, three, four years old. These deities for me, I thought they were my friends. Just like I would play with my Barbie dolls and my stuffed toys, I would feed them, I would play with them, I would give them tea, play tea party with them. I love them. And especially the Durga, Kanakamata Durga Devi is Hinduism is the only religion in the world that sees the divine as not just an almighty father, but almighty mother. So this Murthy Durga stayed in our puja room. And I thought she was my friend. I thought she was my bestie. I loved her so much. And so when these deities, I think it was four, the deities got moved, the temple was consecrated. I remember throwing a huge temper tantrum because you took my friends away. You took my dolls away, basically, right? But as I got older, I realized how much they mean to me, how much Hinduism means to me. I'll, I'll give you a, an overview. So India is the birthplace of Hinduism, South Asia, basically, this giant landmass. So what is now India? So India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, parts of Iran, Nepal, Afghanistan, they were all one giant landmass before partition and lines occurred. So Hinduism has no historical founder. Like the three Abrahamic religions, like Islam, Christianity, and Judaism all come from the prophet Abraham, peace be upon him. We don't have that. Hindus don't have that. What I thought was so cool is that you can see the divine in so many different ways. It's not, it's not some scary being in the sky with a huge beard telling you like, this is wrong, that is wrong. It could be this soft, sweet, beautiful deity like Ganesha, the elephant, the one I'm wearing, it's written in Arabic here, right? So Ganesha, he's so sweet and gorgeous that you just want to pick him up 
and play with him like a child. Or you see Lord Shiva, almighty Shiva, who is the mighty father. So whenever you have an issue or problem, you can call to Lord Shiva, like, like your dad, go kick his ass. You know what I mean? So it's like that dude is, that dude is rude. Go kick his ass. You can pray to Lord Shiva. You can see beautiful Mahalakshmi dressed in her gorgeous robe. And the fact that the songs that my mom taught me, the meaning behind them is so beautiful. Like it's a very personalized relationship with God. That's why I love Hinduism so much. It's very personal. Like you can feel it, feel him, her, it, she, his. I don't know all these pronouns because we believe in all the pronouns. So it's like all of them in your heart. And also Hinduism, it doesn't state that something is wrong. It gives LGBTQI rights. It gives women's rights. It gives rights to all creation because everything in this world is created by the mighty divine. Like paper, paper, pens are all goddess Saraswati, the goddess of knowledge and learning. So we don't step on any paper or step on paintbrushes or musical instruments with our feet because feet are nasty and gross. You walk outside with it. I always thought that was so cool. And wonderful that we respect everything. Everything is divine. When you say namaskaram or namaste to somebody, it literally means I bow to the divine in you. The fact that you can see multiple ways of the divine is something that always appealed to me. Like whatever you're feeling inside, there's space for you. There's room at the table for you. There's room for you in the temple. Kausik says the Shiva Vishnu Temple in Livermore showcases that inclusivity with a range of languages and priests, as well as a combination of North and South Indian architecture. When Kausik moved to New York City, she found herself attending and volunteering at another temple her father had a history in, the Hindu Temple Society of North America in Flushing, Queens. Kausik says her work with teens there caught the attention of NYU. That and her participation in another what she calls more hipster temple at the time, Eddie Stern's Broom Street Temple in Brooklyn. I got 80 white people to sing Maishasar Mardhani Soser. Pat on my back. Yeah, pronunciation was whack, but whatever. God accepts everything, you know? You're, it's the intention behind the prayer, not your pronunciation. Anywho, NYU, they had never met anyone who was born and raised in the U.S. who knows Hindu scriptures. Because generally, Jesse, most people who go to Hindu temples in the U.S., you just see older people. You see grandmas and grandpas, aunties and uncles, or people from India going to temples. You rarely see people born and raised here going to temple because it's not clearly explained. I get it. I totally get it. You take a kid into a temple. The priest is doing something for like 40 minutes. He doesn't get what he's doing. He's like, oh, I'm bored. I'm going to go watch the Simpsons or some shit. You know what I mean? So it's like, I get it. Hinduism, it might be the oldest religion in the world. It's still very much a baby religion in the United States. It's brought by immigrants. And so it's going to take a while for people to understand what this faith is. So I help the students not just have events to like teach about Hinduism, take part in worship, but also if they need spiritual advice, if they're having an issue, how do you solve that? So I can refer them to a scripture or passage or teach them a mantra or teach them um, a saying to help them get through their darkness as well. For those who might not know, what do Hindu prayers and services look like? Okay, so again, Jesse, this depends on how you were born and brought up and raised and whether you're South Indian, North Indian, is East Indian, this and that. Puja means ritualistic prayer, right? And so Hinduism, when we're praying, we're not worshiping the idol. We're worshiping what this murti represents. We are asking the divine to come and inhabit this 
Ganesha, for example, right? The elephant-headed deity, we'll, we'll keep Ganesha as an example, right? We're asking Lord Ganesha to inhabit this. And you have to go back into history. South Asia was very rich with gold as well as agriculture back in the day, before colonization, partition, they were very wealthy. And so to express gratitude, they used to give everything to the temple. And they imagine that Ganesha is sitting right in front of them. We worship as though God is sitting right in front of us. So like the exalted king or the exalted queen, these words that we're saying in puja, avahayami, avahayami, means please come forth, my beloved is what that means, right? So like a king or a queen, you offer them a seat, you offer them food, you offer them ritualistic bathing is called um, abhishega. At the end is the arti, the fire goes around. People might be familiar with arti because of all the Bollywood films, everyone does it, right? But again, it's beautiful because when they sing it, it's saying, you are my mother, you are my father, you are my friend, you are my beloved, you are my everything, is what they are calling to the divine. So that's what like a, a puja is. A puja is ritualistic prayer. Everything has to be neat and clean. Like, for example, before the priest starts the prayer, he cleanses himself with water. He'll drink the water to clean his insides, clean his heart, clean his brain, his ears. You know, let only good thoughts and, and let me be pure and clean when I offer these prayers. So a priest, he leads the prayer, but he's not God. Anybody can do this. That's another thing. But priests are trained because they go to special schools in India called gurukulams, right, where they study all these um, mantras, these like chants, the prayers, and then they come to the United States and they lead it. And they're not chaplains. Like, you know how the, in Christianity, there's a, a pastor, he goes up there and he takes a Bible verse and then he explains it, or then he talks about day-to-day -day life, what's going on and helps people. We don't have that. <laughs> the priest, that's not his job to do something like that, right? His job is to lead the prayer rituals. And then he gives you the offering, the flowers or like the food that you offered and stuff like that. So that's what puja is like um, puja is ritualistic prayer and ritualistic prayer like pujas are very high flown in south india because again they didn't have the islamic influence they didn't have the christian influence because there's a mountain range that protects south india so Tamil Nadu, where my parents are from it's called the temple state so these rituals for years on end eons on end have remained the same because nobody, they didn't have the influence from anybody else. North India, they have the Islamic influence. So a lot of North Indian women, they cover their hair when they go to prayer. And North India, Sanskrit is the language, Sanskrit prayers, right? Sanskrit is supposed to be the mother of all languages too. That's where Hindi came out of, Urdu came out of, everything. All of our prayers and rituals came out of Sanskrit language and came down here. But Tamil people also have a unique way of worshiping. So do Bengali people. So do Punjabi people, Malayali people. That's what makes Hinduism so cool is its diversity and multitude of practices. Like, for example, if you took like New York City area in Manhattan, there's only the Hare Krishna Center, the Bhakti Center, which is in the East Village. So their main deity is Radha and Krishna, right? Radha Krishna. And they follow the sayings of a saint who started the Hare Krishna movement. But that's it. If you want to see a South Indian ginormous temple, you haul yourself on the seven train to go to Flushing Greens. And then you can see the Flushing Ganesha temple. And then across the street from Flushing Temple, there's the North Indian Mandir that's there too, right? Which they have marble deities. And there's an Afghan Hindu temple also. Afghan people were Hindus back in the day. There's still some Afghan Hindus left. And the way they do things vary. 
But Flushing Temple, it's uh, you go on their website and you could there ever since COVID, they've been live streaming their prayer rituals every single day. And it's beautifully done. It starts on time, ends on time. No Indian standard time, no brown standard time. Mm -mm. Everything starts and ends on time. Why, Jesse? Because it's run by a woman. Dr. Uma Meiseraker, for 45 years, she's been the president of Flushing Temple. Everything starts and ends on time, you know, complete efficiency. Well, on that note, is it becoming more common to see women becoming priests or taking leadership roles in temples? I think so. I, like I read about in New York Times, there's a, I think she's North Indian lady who married LGBTQI couples, right? She was featured in New York Times. That was pretty cool. I know it's another um, two or three like Pujaris. Pujari is, means lady priests in like Chicago and in uh, New York area. So there are some, some people are um, taking the initiative to learn these prayers and hymns and be able to lead puja. But slowly but surely, things are changing now in the community, so. You've mentioned some of the misconceptions about Hinduism. What are some other things that you feel people confuse between Hinduism in practice versus other like societal or cultural norms? Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, <laughs> of course. Like for example, the idea of arranged marriages. Did you see that crappy show, that show Indian Matchmaking on Netflix? I did, right? yeah. You saw it, right? <laughs> I hate binge-watched it, along with Amina, my Muslim lady chaplain friend. We hate binge-watched it, okay? Because first of all, what she's saying, not all Indian people act like that, not all Hindu people act like that. In fact, in Hinduism, none of our deities were arranged marriages. Goddess Parvati, who is the embodiment of beauty and who's, who's Shakti, the Shakti means energy. Like no male deity cannot live without his female counterpart, his, the energy, Shakti, the almighty mother, right? Parvati won Shiva through penance. And her penance was so intense that the entire world shook. She chose Lord Shiva. She chose Lord Shiva. Lakshmi, she came out of the churning of the ocean. She chose Lord Vishnu. So not an arranged marriage, right? And Ganesha is technically Parvati's kid. Parvati didn't need Shiva to have a kid. Boom, Ganesh came out of the paste of Parvati's body, right? So it's like, why do we make fun of single mothers? Why is it such a taboo to be a single mom when technically Parvati is a single mom because Ganesh came from her. He didn't come from Shiva. She didn't need Shiva to produce a child. Subramaniam, Kartikeya, his younger brother, came from the six sparks of Lord Shiva's head. So this is a modern day family. Shiva and Parvati are a modern day family because you have a father, you have a mother, and they have these two children. Ganesh is the first deity. You can't get around him. It's a, he's the first deity of Hinduism. No matter if you're a Shaivite, Vaishnavite, Shakti believer, every prayer begins with Lord Ganesha. Can't get around him, right? Ganesha, Subramaniam are brothers, but technically they're, ha they're not even half brothers. They're, they're brothers who came from, one from Lord Shiva, one from Goddess Parvati. So why do we judge single parents? Why do we judge divorced people? Another cool thing, Lord Ayyappan, Dharma Sastra, right? Ayyappa is a deity of South India, Kerala. He is the son of two male deities, Lord Vishnu and Lord Shiva. So why is there so much um, animosity towards the LGBTQI community when Ayyappan is the son of two fathers? Even though Vishnu took the form of the enchanter, Mohini, the lady to have the baby, still, it's like, why do we have these stigmas and taboos? Arranged marriages, it's a cultural phenomenon. It's not a religious phenomenon. And why is it always considered a Hindu thing when 
when all like the Tudors and the European dynasties also had arranged marriages in order to keep wealth in the family, you know? So it's like, why is it a taboo that Hindus believe in arranged marriages? No, we do not. It's a cultural thing. Maybe it's an Indian practice, a South Asian practice, you can say, but it's not a Hindu practice. That's something that I firmly believe in also. And we have brahmachari deities, celibate deities. A Hanuman is a celibate deity. He didn't want to get married. Ganesh is technically a celibate deity. You know how he got out of marriage? They were pressuring him to get married. And he's like, okay, fine. He's also the Lord of wisdom, right? He's like, all right, fine. Find me a woman more accomplished than my mama, more beautiful than my mama. I will marry her, right? And you can't get more beautiful or more accomplished than goddess Parvati. So he got out of it. The Lord of wisdom got out of it, right? But in some stories, in some ways of thinking, he has Siddhi and Buddhi, he has two wives. And also the... When women have periods, they're considered impure. They shouldn't, like, I remember, Jesse, like, I, when I went to India and we went to a temple in, um, I think it was North India or whatever, there's a huge sign outside that said, women on their periods are menstruating, should not enter the temple premises at all. I'm like, what are you going to do? Check? It's like, when I saw that, I was horrified and I was disgusted also. Okay, first of all, and I gave a lecture on this topic with Amina. So you have to go back again in history. When women had had their periods, people didn't live in cities. They were gatherers and wanderers and nomads. They lived in like tents in the middle of the forest. So when women, they bled, animals could smell the blood, right? So it's like, then they would attack. So that's why they kept these women isolated so people could protect them. Like they would build the village around them. So it's like they would be safe from animal attacks. And where did everyone socialize and gather? It was at the temple back in the day. So it's like when people, when women are going there, animals could smell, smell the blood and they would attack. So that's why it's like they kept them separate, kept them from going there to keep them safe, this practice. And plus, I don't know about you, but women, when they got their periods, we crazy with PMS. It feels like someone's stabbing us in the back with a stiletto. So why would you want to go to temple when you're, when you're trying to pray and connect with God and you're like, oh, my back hurts. Oh, my legs hurt. You know, that's another reason people kept them separated. But it's not because you're impure or you're unclean. Actually, there are a couple of temples in northeastern India, I read about this, where the goddess ministrates. They have an entire festival built around this deity who ministrates. I thought that was so beautiful and so cool. And you had asked me before, what I love about Hinduism too is it's, there's always something new and fun and fascinating to learn about Hinduism. Another deity, another way of thinking, another practice, another book, another scripture. Everyone says that Hinduism, the Bhagavad Gita, that's the only scripture that they're familiar with. No, that's not the only scripture we have. We have Vedas, we have Shastras, we have different books written by different um, saints, uh, saints and like uh, sages. So Bhagavad Gita isn't our Hindu Bible. That's another thing, the stigma that needs to be broken. Because let me tell you about the Bhagavad Gita. While I was working at the Metropolitan Museum, a curator, he told me, he's like, think about it. Before the British came, the Bhagavad Gita wasn't really illustrated. Like it wasn't really written down. It wasn't really illustrated on paper. Like you saw carvings of it. Like you saw the Pallava dynasty, the Chera Chora dynasties, the Mahabalipuram in, in South India with the carvings of the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna giving the sermon and stuff like that. But there's no paintings. There's no drawings, no paper. 
of this. Why? Because when the British came to South Asia, when they came to what is now India, they saw all these people thinking in a multitude of different ways, praying in all sorts of ways. They were massively confused because they came from a Christian background. They're like, oh boy, because they came from one book, one prophet, one thing. And they saw all of this and they were like, okay, you know what? We're going to take Mahabharata, the poem that Bhagavad Gita is extracted from. And they're like, here you go. This is the Hindu Bible. And that's not right. So after the British came, now, then you see a lot more paintings and drawings of Lord Krishna giving the sermon to Arjuna and stuff like that written down. But it's interesting. You look in art history, it teaches you a lot as well, too. So that's another stigma that needs to be broken is that we don't just have one central text. We have multitude ways of thinking and multiple books. And everyone should accept how the other ones think. North India isn't better than South India. South India isn't better than East India. East isn't better than the West. We're all equal under the divine. You mentioned that uh, Hinduism is growing in the U.S., but it's still maybe one of the smaller religions. Like, what do you see as both the obstacles and opportunities in Hinduism right now? Opportunities, first of all, people are, we're all spending more time online than everything because we can't congregate in person because of COVID, right? That means the reach is far. People can get to know about Hinduism through YouTube, through Facebook, through all these channels of communication, through the digital world, right? So that opportunity and the fact that the world is becoming more inclusive. You see all of these different colleges have inclusivity and diversity trainings, right? So that's a step in the right direction. At least they're starting to care a bit more. And so the obstacles I face is that people don't know so much about Hinduism correctly in order to actually help. Like, for example, I was part of NACA, North American Hindu Chaplains Association was formed, right? And so that's to help with spiritual caregiving and find chaplains to work in hospital, military, and the university system. But it's like, so when they say chaplain, again, even the word chaplain, we don't have that in Hindu language. Like when I went to... (laughs) Like when I went to NYU, like Imam Khalid was the first person who took me under his wing. I'm like, what the hell's a chaplain, dude, is what I said to him. You know what I mean? And chaplain Khalid explained to me, it's spiritual caregiving. It's being there for someone the way they need you to be there for them, right? I'm like, dope. That's so cool. I'm like, I can do this. So when you say Hindu chaplain, most Hindus, like even the ones born and raised here, they don't know what a Hindu chaplain is. Like my parents don't know what a chaplain is until I explain to them or whatever, unless they go to the hospital, then you have like a Christian chaplain to help you through, like if someone is dying or has, um, God forbid, some horrible disease, like someone to talk you through this pain, right? So slowly chaplaincy, Hindu chaplaincy is, uh, is growing in the United States. Like I've had people contact me from the military and from also prisons as well, but they also need to know the right terminology like for example i'll get requests can you marry this couple i'm like okay in hinduism what do not like not denomination but what is the language that they speak what culture did they come from how are they raised what do they prefer they can't explain these things to me you need to ask the right questions and also for example one of my, one of my students at nyu he wanted to study chaplaincy so i i wrote his recommendations to divinity schools right there's harvard divinity school and there's one in chicago and the box check in the checkbox it says affiliation church synagogue uh yo you forgot temple you know what i mean like stuff like that so it's like they don't even have temple or mosque as a um, checkbox that you can pick or whatever. But you know, like Jesse, I have a 
positive outlook that things are growing and because the world is becoming more inclusive and people are starting to understand each other more and have access to each other more like no matter how much i have a love-hate relationship with social media right but at least you learn information learn about new things you can hear about some like cool graffiti artist in the middle of africa someplace because he has an instagram account you know uh, there's a huge hindu temple in ghana africa that i can't wait to go yeah black people african people are hindus there's a gigantic temple in ghana africa so there are different hindu people in the u.s who are trying their level best to bring hinduism to the mainstream but i don't i really don't appreciate like this Indian matchmaking show, you need to put a disclaimer on that, that this is only certain types of people who act like this, who believe in this. There are others who do not. Meanwhile, there are other like good TV shows like um, uh, Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever. Did you see that? I haven't seen that, no. It's about an Indian American family who lives in Southern California in LA. But you know, she beautifully illustrates what Indian American Hindu kids feel the Devi, that's the lead actress in that show. Like, you know, she doesn't know anything about Hinduism. She's growing up like any other American kid. Like she has a crush on the hot guy or whatever. And then they take her to a Hindu puja or whatever, which is a school gymnasium. And it's just more a cultural thing than anything. No one is really worshiping. They don't understand the meaning behind it. That's what, how a lot of people feel. A lot of Hindu kids feel in the US. But I thought that was a beautifully done show. Because people assume also culturally that everyone speaks Hindi, like all Indians speak Hindi, which is not true. I don't speak Hindi. I don't understand Hindi so much here and there. I can. My father speaks Hindi fluently because he lived in the north. My mom does not. So it's like at least Tamil has been put on the map, like a South Indian language has been put on the map. And people need to realize that India is extremely diverse. There's over 5,000 languages that are spoken there. English and Hindi are not the only two, you know? The people need to accept the diversity of Hinduism, the diversity of Indian cultures as well too. They're different ways of thinking and accept all of them. Well, lastly, do you have like either like a favorite religious message or deity or story that you'd like to share with listeners? Oh my God, I love all of them. That's, that's the biggest, the thing is for me, Ganesh see. I love that Sanskrit phrase, Vasudeva Kudupakam, which means that the world, the entire world is one family. And that's the principle that I adhere by. So technically, you're my sister. He's my brother. She's my mother. She's my sister. If you see everyone as one, as oneness, then you wouldn't have hatred or malice or judgmentalness in your heart and your brain. So Vasudeva Kudupakam, which means the entire world is one family. And then Om Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu, which means let all creation be healthy, happy, and prosperous. So Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu is said at the end after every prayer ritual. So we're not just praying for Hindu people to be happy or, or, or Indian people to be happy. We're praying for the entire world, the entire planet, all creation. Creation includes animals, birds, plants, all of the all vegetation, all of that too. Well, Sangeeta, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Sangeeta Kausik is a Hindu chaplain at New York University and the founder of its Hindu Center. She's also a founding member of the North American Hindu Chaplain Association and a designer slash artist by profession. You can find a link to some of her work at WAMCpodcast.org. Again, Sangeeta, thanks so much for taking the time. It was nice to chat with you. No, thank you so much for having me, Jesse. I really appreciate it. I hope and pray this Omnicorn and 
and Delta and all the crap from COVID goes away soon and that everybody can um, gather in person again. You've been listening to 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's hosted by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. Thanks again to Sangeetha Kausik for taking part in this week's episode. To learn more about our guest or just the show in general, again, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. You could also find new and old episodes there or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. Happy New Year. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. At night and down the hallway. I had to learn how to look away. I lost my cool. No electricity. Hot rain on the concrete. Sweet. Day.